Dear Peter, do you often feel that you don't understand math? Yes. <laughs> do you make mistakes in math? Yes, definitely. Does it sometimes make you feel stupid? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you occasionally get impressed by other mathematicians? Uh, totally. Ah, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> now we can start talking. <laughs> um, so, welcome to Math Life Balance. Today, our guest is Peter Scholze, a professor at Bonn University working in number theory and arithmetic geometry. Welcome, Peter. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so you're the first field medalist on my channel, and I hope you feel very honored. Well, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I imagine that you got interested in math quite early. So I'm curious, um, how do you think which part of your background influenced your rising interest for math? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, it's a little hard to say when precisely I really got into math. So, I mean, maybe first I should say that my, my parents they work in the sciences. I mean, they're, I mean, my father, he's, um, he's a physicist. He, uh, he's not a professor, but he works at a particle, particle accelerator, uh, electron accelerator in Berlin, just a small one. I mean, not, not like, uh, not like the LHC or something like this, but, um, and my mother studied computer science. Uh, so my sister went into chemistry, so we have like most of the sciences in our family. Um, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm definitely from a science background in this way. Um, and I did participate in these kind of mass competitions uh, already in elementary school. Uh, elementary school in Berlin actually is six years, and I, I didn't skip any grades, I actually spent six years in elementary school. Um, and then maybe the first time I realized that I might be any good at this was um, when in the Mass Olympiad, I think it was the seventh grade, um, in the Berlin round, Berlin wide round. Like I barely made it into that round. <laughs> uh, but then I uh, got a first prize in the, in the Berlin round. I could, found this very surprising that nobody in Berlin. Uh, cool. Get any better. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I'm curious, um, so since you were interested in math, so it was your hobby, I guess it's school time. Right. So what came as a surprise about being a mathematician uh, as a researcher? What came as a surprise? And I mean, like <clears throat> the way in which I'm doing math now, like I, it actually feels more like, like continually learning than actually doing research. So I, So during math Olympiads, you have this problem and you try to solve it. But to me, what I'm doing in math now is not at all like this. I'm just trying to learn. Um, and then suddenly, sometimes you learn something that you're surprised to know that seemingly nobody has learned that before. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So uh, do you, what's the difference for you between learning math from someone else, like in a talk or reading from a paper and coming up with some math yourself? Like, is there a difference? Well, as I said, I mean, to a large 
X10, what I'm doing is actually like, I'm just rephrasing what others have done in my own words. So I'm just look, I'm just repeating what they said. And sometimes you somehow combine it with something else you you already learned, and then you just say it in a slightly different words, but suddenly they assume a slightly different meaning somehow. But I don't know. But, yeah. I know what you mean, but it still sounds like a miracle. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> but still, okay, I, I understand that research feels like learning, but nevertheless, you do manage to get like, to see connections between faraway things that people didn't observe before. So could you try to, I don't know, explain how, how do you manage to see the big picture or give any recommendations for us trying to? Well, I think like one thing you're maybe alluding to is when I use some stuff like from topological host etymologies business and do something in Pierre de theory. And so there, <clears throat> I mean, Lauren Fark, I learned from Lauren Fark that there should be something called, now called the Broekisian Fark module associated to some varieties. There was some kind of abstract construction of this, which was not very, yeah, direct. So there should be a direct way of constructing this, I thought. And so I, I just looked around for where one might find something like this. And then I read this paper of Hesselhold, uh, <clears throat> where he computed some topological cyclic homology, homology, whatever stuff. And, uh, this famous uh, ring and Pierre de Koch theory comes up. And then I thought, well, okay, so this must be the place to look for this thing. So, and then. <clears throat> then I just have to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the figuring out bit is still mysterious. <laughs> so out of all your experience with research, what do you think are the parts that you could try to share with say younger mathematicians, like what are the things you can teach and what are some miraculous things that just happen? Yeah, I actually find it very hard to teach how to do mathematics because I have the feeling that what I'm like, I, yeah, I can't, ex like I would have some recommend, like I can roughly say what I'm doing, but it seems that this advice doesn't really work. So. <laughs> okay, tell us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> one thing is that I'm always just, one thing I'm very interested in is definitions. I'm not, not as much interested in theorems or proofs. I'm more interested in definitions. But I mean, those definitions, like they need to satisfy some boundary conditions. And they, like they must make it easy to state interesting theorems and they must make it easy to prove them. Uh, and but I find it very hard to say what this even means really, um, or what a good definition really is. But in some sense, I'm really interested in definitions. So, um, I would encourage one to look for good definitions, but. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, you know, it's, it's weird that given, um, how hard it is to answer such questions that doing math research seems to be an extremely creative, um, occupation. No, actually I'm not a creative person at all. I like, <laughs> I'm not creative. Um, 
like, like I'm, I'm a hardcore mathematical Platonist. And so I believe that there is like mathematical work for us to discover. And in this way, you don't, I mean, I'm not creative, right? It's like when I'm trying to learn math, I'm learning what's there. I mean, it's, it's then I'm trying to give it names, but that's all. Oh, so you mean that you, d you don't create, but rather discover. Right. And right. yeah, so it's not creative. Wow. <laughs> really? I'm, like, I'm really not good at... I mean, I'm never good at like writing a poem or anything like that. I never come up with, with words. I'm very bad at finding words. Um, or like paintings, I, I don't know. I, or I tell an interesting story. I'm, I'm not any good at this. Uh, but in Mars, everything is, it seems forced on us, on me. I don't know. So I don't have to be creative. Can I ask you about this forced thing? So I already asked someone about it, but I still, I'm still curious. So some people, some mathematicians say that they feel the freedom when doing math, whereas for me, uh, it feels like being forced by lots and lots of constraints. So how is it for you? It, it's in some sense it's both, yeah? I mean, in some sense you're radically free in mathematics because as long as you're, like if you want to prove something, as long as it's a proof, it's a proof, right? You're free to do whatever you want. Um, so in this sense it's radically free. But on the other hand, like you're very much constrained. I mean, you can't, it must actually be a proof. <laughs> uh, so. Um, yeah, it's something I very much enjoy about mathematics. That, um, yeah, if somebody has a good idea, then it can be as unorthodox as whatever, but still. You seem to be not so bad at finding words. An orthodox is a cool description. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying it's some kind of a combination. Right. I know. I, I tend to think of myself as a little bit anarchistic, but I'm not sure too much, how much of this is true. But uh, in math, you can actually be an anarchist in some sense, right? <clears throat> because. What do you mean? Well, because you're completely free in what kind of methods or gears and whatever. I mean, like there, there are no real rules that restrict you. I mean, it must be, must be true. I wonder, say you wanted to understand something and you came up with a proof. Uh, do you often try to come up with a different proof? Yes. I mean, my, my goal is not primarily to prove, but to understand. And so why would I mean, ideally, I prove it in some way so that I understand what I've actually done. And like only, yeah. I mean, usually when I have a proof that I don't understand, then <laughs> there's something wrong about it. And so I could think a little more about it. And so I find what's wrong. So do you often are in a situation when, uh, or occasionally when you read like a statement and the proof and like line by line, it's okay, but you don't get a general feeling and then... Yes, yes. And actually, for, for, 
for some reason, I never got into this field. I'm mean, sorry for this. Motivic homotopy theory. <laughs> uh, I tried a couple of times, but the definitions didn't speak to me. I think it's getting better now. But I, I read this book of Matza, Wolwotsky, and Weibel, and, and like the first definition, it didn't seem right to me. These final correspondences, they didn't speak to me at all. And so I tried to read on a little, but at some point I could follow it line by line, but it didn't, it didn't I don't know, it doesn't speak to me. The child groups speak to me. And no, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> How about? I mean, maybe, so, I mean, but higher child groups, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this motivic complex symptom, maybe. You need higher child groups to understand usual child groups. Do classical child groups look reasonable too? <laughs> kind of. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, you shouldn't take this book too serious, but somehow I never. Yeah. I mean, I. Look, I cannot ignore that comment, so let me say something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't not take it personally, but I see motivic theory as one of the approaches to study algebraic K-theory. So you guys are, uh, part of your work is about studying its periodic part. Right. And, <clears throat> motivic theory is, I think, designed to study its analytic part. Um, and so that's... Also, I mean, rationally. I mean, I, yeah, I... Maybe one thing that I find strange about this is that, like, I really like Italian descent, or I, I'm a big fan of descent. Okay. Yeah. But in motivic homotopy theory, you only have this Nevich descent, and so some like even analytically is a series different from Italian homology, and this really. But that's not our fault. It's K theory that does not have Italian descent. Yeah, it's K theory, but that's maybe a bug of K theory, anyways. Maybe one should ignore it. Just Italian shapeify. But then you lose lots of interesting stuff. I really would like to understand the Google but I, I tried a couple of times, but I miserably failed every, every time. There, there is a good lecture by Merkuriev online. And ah, okay. I should check that out. Yeah, that's cool. So my audience has already heard about you because um, you featured in the interview of Dustin Clausen. And so I'm curious, uh, how does your collaboration with Dustin work? Could you try to describe? Ah, our collaboration. Uh, well, I mean, when he came to Bonn in uh, 2018, um, he explained to me all these ideas he had about, like, what he called continuous case theory, um, uh, which was being based on, I mean, what we now call the condensed formalism. And I was very interested in this. I mean, somehow, I knew this condensed formalism principle, but I wasn't aware that you could actually, like, it's actually a good sub way of doing, like, topology. And this is what he really convinced me of in you know, very short order. But then we had some problems that completion didn't work so well, and then we just exchanged ideas and, like, I don't know. Like, we wouldn't, like, sit together at a blackboard and try to figure out something. This basically, I think, never happened. Uh, but, like, over lunch, he would shout one idea to me. The next day, I would shout one idea back, and then like every day at home, we would like process a little and then shout one idea back. And then... Interesting. So most of processing happens when you're alone or in discussion? Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. 
And sometimes we need to like sit down and discuss one of these ideas like a little more in detail. But yeah. So what do you enjoy more, like thinking on your own or um, this exchanging thing? I enjoy both. Yeah. Um, I mean, exchanging ideas with others is more fun, but uh, yeah. Like, I don't know, let's make this my passion, and passion also has this connotation of like, this. It involves some struggling. <laughs> huh. So do you enjoy the struggling or it's like a necessary part for you? Well, it literally hurts in my head. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Do you think that doing math research necessary and involves this kind of struggle in your head? I think so. I mean, I think it's just, I don't know. I think it's just part of learning that when things are rewired in your brain, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm sometimes I get obsessed with something and I really want to know whether something is true or not. And then I just, I mean, sometimes it wouldn't be so important really. It's just to, have some more peace afterwards, but sometimes I'm not sure if it was worth it. <laughs> so. But uh, you have to deal with um, students, I guess, like yeah. you have PhD yeah. students and uh, other people. So uh, is it, can you relate to them and their different ways of like thinking about math? Um, I hope so. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I'm just... Maybe I, yeah. I'm curious whether it's weird for you when people are less passionate about math or you're like, cool. Let me ask you about something else. So I guess right. everyone who would be watching this video would be waiting when I finally ask you about the fieldsman. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I do have a question. Um, I mean, Everyone speaks of getting Fields Medal as like the best thing that can possibly happen to you. But when I try to imagine it, I imagine that it must be like some joy of the pride and hell, lots of pressure. So how is it in reality? Yeah, the pressure is a very real part of it. I mean, like, also my family was very worried uh, what would happen after the award. Was it? With all the publicity that you get. Uh, in the end, I managed to <laughs> uh, not get too much, but I think. Uh, but even before, like the pressure I felt was uh, a little unnerving. Uh, like, I mean, basically, since uh, after after the ICM in 2014, it was already said that there's one guy who will definitely get it in 2018. Like, uh, <laughs> no pressure here. <laughs> you mean that you felt pressure to produce more great math? Yeah, I mean, like, did I have to, like, yeah, did I have to prove myself that I'm actually worth getting it? Yeah, I don't know. So how did you deal with that pressure? <sighs> I'm not sure. Not well, probably. 
You know, when someone asked Jacob Lurie, how does he do his time management with, you know, writing thousands of pages of books, Jacob answered badly. Well, (laughs) 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 Um, but also a related question to the pressure. So um, I guess many people in academia struggle with imposter syndrome because, I don't know, academic jobs somehow come together with that. But I imagine that for you, it must be on a much different level. So how how does that work for you? Like, I mean, very early on in my career, I got really good and strong support. I was grateful for this. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, at the time, like, I was really confused because I mean, like the main thing I probably had done was give a different proof of an old theorem. And I was <laughs> a little confused. But how did you learn to deal with it? My decision was just to ignore it. Oh. Did it work? <laughs> Kind of, yeah. So my, uh, my, yeah, my, yeah, my, my advice is definitely just ignore it. It wasn't your decision. <laughs> they gave it to you, so now it just, yeah. But it's not just about the prize, right? So you also, you also um, serve as a representative of, well, one of the people who represent mathematics, because yeah, that's you, that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> That's <how it> curious. <laughs> uh, yeah, because then. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> you have to be a serious person. No, you have to be fun. <laughs> so the mathematicians are fun, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, for all these things, my decision was to ignore it. I'm not sure it's always a wise decision. But otherwise, I think it just blocks your mind. So, If you can ignore it, that's great. <laughs> um, wow. Mm, I see. And so... With all that together, uh, do you think it's a good idea in general that to have prizes in mathematics? I mean, it's a good thing to celebrate uh, some some of the work that's been done, right? Um, so, yeah. So in this way, that uh, prizes play a role of like celebrating achievement. I think this way, I think that that's a good thing. Um, there's always also like all this competitiveness about prices that's uh, maybe not so healthy. Uh, and it's, I think, hard to strike a balance. Yeah, I think during my master's time, I guess I was quite competitive. 
Did you get to be less competitive? I, I hope I'm less competitive now. <laughs> really? You also managed to ignore the fact that people exaggerate facts about you. Yeah. I guess, as I said, I'm not sure it's always a wise decision. <laughs> Because, so, uh, that's not so related, but... Normally, when a journalist prepares to an interview in a real world of real interviews, uh, more professional than this one, <laughs> the, the job of the journalist is to read previous interviews of the person, if they exist. Thank And you. for mathematicians, they either don't exist or are quite painful to read, in my opinion. So I tried uh -huh. to read one of yours yesterday. And as always, it disturbed me a lot. Because this one with Ulf Persson? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry for this interview. <laughs> This is indeed horrible. <laughs> But the, the 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 question that okay, I tried to skip the questions because I was interested in you, not the interviewer. But I guess the question that I have seen, which made me most upset, was um, I, I want to tell it to the audience just to show how disturbing it is. How people, I think. Even within the try to understand how math research works, they get it completely wrong. I mean, this guy is actually a mathematician. Really? Yes. Okay. So he... Uh, really? I googled and he... he it well, was I, mean, he, I think he studied math. So actually, my, my advisor, Michael Rappaport, was apparently... Fr well, is friends with him. And yeah, I don't know. That's I why I agreed he, to the interview anyway. Really? It was, I googled and it said he has PhD in like economics or something. <laughs> Right. Anyway, he asks you, and I'll read this for for everyone to share my pain. If you discovered that statement A implied the Riemann hypothesis, would you keep quiet and wait until someone proved A in order to get the major credit yourself? Like what? <laughs> That's what I thought, and I mean, maybe my answer wasn't so unsportsmanlike. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Um, reading this so what are the main things that you would like the like outer world to understand about math research and about you like what are the misconceptions that you'd like to break something <laughs> i mean i find it very hard to say something about math research like in general because like there's so many different mathematicians doing mathematics in so many different ways that it's like impossible to say like math research is like that And it's great that mathematics is uh, open to all these different kinds of characters. So, um, yeah, so uh, what should I say straight about math research? Well, first is that I, or at least I used to think that there are very few people like trying to solve Riemann hypothesis by day. Uh, <clears throat> like, like, just pick a really hard problem and like just try to do it. Yeah. I mean, I find the chances of this working minute, but uh, <clears throat> wait, that's interesting. So you yourself never sit and like decide today I'm going to try to solve a huge problem. No. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> people certainly have that misconception. People, people like I think even within math, people imagine that that you know you pick a. Harder is one of the. Uh, I mean, you should you should feel that you know something that gives you a better chance of doing this. And I mean, for the one for these really hard problems, 
I mean, for these like not so well-known problems, of course, you can just try to see what, I mean, you're maybe you're coming from a different background. Maybe you think that something you know might be helpful there, then of course go for it. Uh, but yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm also maybe atypical in that I'm, I'm trying to learn mathematics. And as I said, I'm, for me, like one of the surprises of becoming mathematicians is the way I work is not so much that I take nice, nice and awesome kids. I take this problem that appeared in this paper and let's just try to solve it. Um, and other mathematicians have a very different attitude to this and it's great. Um, so, but as regards to very big problems, I think it's just not a fruitful uh, way to spend your time. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. No, I, I really love your attitude about learning math, and um, also when when people so when people outside math ask me what is the cool thing about doing math research because you know it feels very weird to people outside math. I try to say that it's a it's a weird occupation, but you learn things every day, and you will do that until you die. Right. And then I'm not sure if people get. Convinced, but at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, learning is painful, so maybe people don't like that so much. And, oh, yeah, I had a positive question about this. So, okay, uh, with all the, I imagine, absurd questions you might be asked in different, you know, interviews and whatnot, publicity, but can you remember some funny or question that you were asked about your job or some question you liked? I, I do get some, I mean, this is very unrelated, but <clears throat> I, I do get uh, some kind of amateur emails from time to time about things I discovered about the world. And, and one of the most more funny ones, I just told the story, it has no relation to the question, but it's a funny story anyways. Um, uh, so there was this amateur mathematician who um, complained that mathematicians wouldn't understand that one is a prime. Um, and so as a definition, he took that the prime is a number that's divisible by exactly two uh, integers, uh, positive integers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so one doesn't qualify because it's only divisible by one. But then he complains that this is because mathematicians only ever write with white chalk, so there's only the white one. But he writes with green and red. So he has a green one and a red one. <laughs> well, there are two. <laughs> Wait, you really get such emails? And, and so this was one of the realizations he had. And the other realization he had was that there, the universe, you know, it started in a, in a big bang and then it's three-dimensional now, right? And so the reason for this is that there are three natural sequences. Uh, they all start with one, so that's a big bang, and then they, they continue differently somehow. And so then this is three dimensions. So one of these sequences are the odd numbers. One, three, five, seven, nine, eleven. One is the prime numbers. One, two, three, five, seven, eleven. And one is the even numbers. One, two, four, six, eight. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you getting such kind of emails regularly? Yeah. Why? Why do people write to you? I also want to get to you. Well, maybe because I, I'm one of the mathematicians who has been in the news. So. Ah, just that? I guess. I don't know. Or, no, perhaps they think that you have a brighter mind to 
like accept their ideas. You yeah, know. I mean, they also, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's something about, yeah, they hurt it. I don't know, but whatever, but. <laughs> Do you ever answer such emails? Hmm? Do you ever answer such emails? Uh, no, not really, no. Actually, related to just uh, enumerating the primes, I remember that once I was in my algebraic geometry class, I was drawing a picture of spec Z, and I was drawing the points, and I went two, three, five, seven, nine. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to make students excited? <laughs> I, I think uh, somebody pointed this out to me quite soon. I'm not sure if they're taking, if they're taking a picture in time. <laughs> oh. Well, you and Grassendick then have a lot in common. <laughs> Well, I'm even worse. I always started at nine. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, my math teacher in high school showed me a huge collection, like a pile of handwritten letters that he was getting with uh, proofs of Fermat theorem. And I was really impressed. Like he was just a, a math school teacher and he got like lots of these letters. So... Okay. No, I didn't. I mean, I, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, originally the hope was that after this got proved, things this would die, die down a little, but I, I didn't think it happened as much. I think it died down, I don't know. I wasn't around. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't get so many things about fun. Uh, but this was already much, much after it was proved. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I guess so, yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, so I'm not getting much of those. Oh, well, you get explanations of how the universe works. That's also <laughs> Yeah, it's even better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're having some fun. That's good. Um, but, okay, related to that, I was wondering, so you have lots of, as, as I mentioned, lots of duties besides your beautiful research. You also, you know, have to take part of lots of administration and stuff. So what's the most annoying for you or distracting of all the things you're doing besides research? No, I, I think it's not too bad. So I basically enjoy a lot of most of what I'm doing. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you have a good balance of work responsibilities and... Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Is it because mm. you have such a good time management or because... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you see... Uh, like there was this project I started with Laurent Clark in 2014. And I mean, in the internet, you can see some rumors that we wanted to have this ready in 2018. And okay, when the lockdown started in 2020, I decided that, well, okay. I mean, that was the time when anyway, I'd finished all my previous stuff and I really wanted to get this done. And I said, well, no, maybe with the lockdown, I can like, really have time to now get this done. And it didn't work at all. <laughs> The doctor made me less productive than more productive, uh, obviously. Um, you had kids at home, right? So yeah. yeah. And that usually doesn't help productivity, <laughs> from what I heard. I also like, you have so much less energy. Yeah, I don't know. So, yeah. Uh, and so then for, for a whole year, I was just struggling through this. And after like half a year, I basically had most of it written, but then I realized that there's something else that was missing. 
and I really had to put some real effort in again to try to see if I can do it. And so then I was again struggling for a few months trying to see if I can do it or not. And I was so completely exhausted when we finally finished the paper. Yeah, we basically haven't done anything since. <laughs> well, the paper is an archive, huh? The paper is, yeah, so I uploaded it in February. Uh, I've not been very productive. <clears throat> Thanks for sharing this. <laughs> I think now many people get relieved when they hear that. <laughs> no, but finishing this paper was such a... I can't sympathize. <laughs> yeah, but no, I I can imagine. So you're saying So you're saying that even you struggle with writing math. Like what's wrong with writing math if, if it's a pain for everyone? <laughs> well, but I mean you have to write it down. Like I mean I I like for some time I basically had all the arguments together in my mind, probably. But then when you actually sit down and try to do it, you realize it doesn't work at all. And, and it's okay. So then you sit down some more and realize, yeah, okay, maybe actually wasn't too wrong. You can still make it work. Yeah. But what's I mean, like actually writing it down, it's actually really important because I mean, how should anybody else like ever learn it if you don't write it down? <laughs> and if the ideas you formed in your head are like only 30% of what you actually need to do it, But um, could we somehow, we as a community, make the writing math process a little easier or it has to be a pain for everyone forever? I mean, I hate that it's a pain, but like, I don't see how the pain I've gone through could be avoided. I mean, like, I actually had to write down proof, right? I don't know. I mean, like, if you let down the responsibility of actually like writing complete proofs, then, then it's not math anymore to my mind. Yeah, so, but really there is no way to make it any easier. Okay, I, I'm not sure about all the experiences. I can just tell you about the experience I had with writing the paper and it was extremely painful. And I, I think all of this pain was necessary for me, so. No, I, I totally understand, but I, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this may be not a very unique experience of the pain of trying to write down math. Yeah, no, I, could, I can totally imagine that other people have <laughs> the same experience, and I totally sympathize with them, but I totally have no idea. Uh, I mean, yeah. No, it's just that we never tried, to, we as a community, I haven't heard of us as a community thinking about trying to somehow change the process of math writing because people do think uh, how to improve teaching or people do put effort into making conferences perhaps more um, less exhausting and you know um, more human related right. but writing has not been discussed and maybe there is nothing to do I'm just curious maybe we should think about it even if it's useless okay yeah I don't know yeah and the most painful is, of course, if you realize that actually nobody actually ever wrote it down and you have to do it yourself. And yeah. then you realize that actually the arguments in literature don't, you don't even argue really enough to actually give a proof and then you have to struggle through even more. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then, I mean, like, it's this preservation of pain. Like, these other people, they didn't suffer through it. Right? They just said it's true. And then now you, they make you suffer. So I think the person who's the first running it should suffer. <laughs> Do you ever get your math emails with math questions ignored? Uh, yeah. I mean, some people are very slow with answering. Ah, so they might answer a year later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I get an answer, but it's not very helpful. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. I wanted to use the opportunity uh, to make some justice. So in the previous interviews, there were a few negative, several negative comments about um, Germany and life there. So let's do some justice and let me tell that from my experience of um, studying in Germany, uh, Germany has been doing an amazing job in supporting research and sponsoring lots and lots of math events, for example, mm. uh, which has been really great. That's something to be really thankful for. But I'm wondering and a little scared whether at some point someone in the government will realize how abstract our research is. And <laughs> <clears throat> no, I don't think. <clears throat> you mean, but really, like, why why does the government kindly put a lot of funding into pure research, like into us? Does, do you find it reasonable? Yes. Why? Can you explain why they're doing it? No, I don't know. I mean, mathematics is still the basis of, of it all in some ways. And, and there's a cross-fertilization between all these different areas. And I have not thought about real functional analysis in some ways using uh, ideas that originally came from thinking about some nonsense in Pierre Cox theory. So, um, mm. I mean, sorry for talking about something I've done personally, but I mean, there's also all these things. Uh, um, and I mean, I think that's also the thing that's actually quite unique about mass is that you can actually make usually solve a dispute by <laughs> actually just arguing rationally in mathematics. And this is true even more in mathematics and in other sciences. And I think if it was just for that, I think mathematics would have a place. I mean, yeah, but on the other hand, we're like having fun with learning math. And someone is paying for that. That's so weird for me. <laughs> you shouldn't, like, why should you be upset that you're enjoying what you're doing? There's upset. no point in being, like, feeling guilty about it. <laughs> okay. I'll try not to. So you never feel this way? I ignore it. <laughs> How do you manage to ignore so many things? 
<laughs> How does it work? How can one learn to ignore things? Are you born with that talent to ignore? <laughs> um, not sure. You know, there are nowadays so many like um, on all over internet, there are like texts about how you should deal with your feelings. And there's like the slogan, you should feel your feelings. And like, and I never understand what they're even talking about. I don't understand what else can you do with your feelings and feel them. Like, what? Which <laughs> <laughs> brings me to the thought that some people make. So my advice feelings. sounds like I'm the contrary advice, but I don't think it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> No, like both of these statements give a hint that there exist people in the universe who manage to like ignore some things and not take everything <laughs> extremely personally <laughs> and get emotional about everything. <laughs> um, but okay, getting back to this math development question. So you think that, okay, that abstract research will still be valuable in the future, but okay, there is this popular question which still bothers me sometimes as in, the like abstraction level of math is growing and complexity is also growing in some sense. And so is there a limit where human <laughs> understanding cannot go further? So aren't we making it more and more abstract? Good question. Well, I, I think we're also restructuring the knowledge so that it's... Yeah, we, what used to be complicated before will probably like become easier in some ways after. Just at a different level of abstraction. The question is whether the levels of abstraction will still accumulate. It's not necessarily clear. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree about restructuring, but I think we are doing like, going both directions, like simplifying some things that yeah, I mean, we thought about before, and also creating more complicated things or creating, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but it's going, it's been going on for a while and so far we're doing fine, so. Okay. <laughs> but in the last 50 years, math has become much more abstract. Yeah. I don't know, but maybe there's an, And a related question from my friend. So uh, she asked me, and I didn't know what to say, so maybe I'll ask you uh, whether. Um, so in 19, 1900, uh, Hilbert presented a list of 26 problems, which he thought uh, at the time were um, the most important ones. Right. And okay, it's been a while. So do we need an update of that list? It would be fun, yeah. And would you be theoretically interested in taking part in writing such? <laughs> I uh, something that was quite unique about Hilbert is that he really had this overview about of mathematics that he could really formulate problems in all these areas. It was amazing. I mean, I don't think anybody could do that. But now you can take few people and you know exchange. Yeah, them. I think you would need few people. Yeah. And I guess the Clay Institute tried to do this with these millennium problems a little bit. Yeah, but that's... Shorter, shorter lists than Hilbert. 
Yeah, but they're like too huge and too too. Yeah, huge. right. I mean, many of Hilbert's problems were actually not like here's this one problem that you should solve, but rather like find a framework for doing something. Like he was actually also maybe interested in definitions. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, a little more open-minded. Um, like in what what an answer could be. Uh, Yeah, I mean, with these Millennium problems, they are somehow probably too hard for anyone to just attack. So. Um, yeah, I think it would be great. Um, I'm not sure I could help. But, uh, I imagine you could. <laughs> I wouldn't. Like, if I if you get a sincere request, I would try to do my best. <laughs> Okay, so I hope some more mathematicians of your level will watch this video and then you can <laughs> something. And then the young mathematicians will have a not not like a list of tasks, but rather a better idea of what the interesting directions are. And maybe that could be helpful. Actually, uh, something I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm not sure if it will actually happen, but I mean, so they, are you aware of these about both of Arbeitsgemeinschaften? About what? About, about the Arbeitsgemeinschaft in Oberwolfach. So where like a group of people just meet and learn some topic. And I got asked whether I would like to, like, I mean, currently Fartings and Deninger uh, uh, are doing this and they attend every other meeting or something. And they asked me whether I would like to like do this in the future. And it's not clear what I will be able to do. I mean, but, um, uh, I think it might be fun to just uh, learn some kind of different topics this way. <laughs> learn to see if some other communities. And like usually you just go to your conference in your own field. And I, I'm kind of curious to see how it would be too. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So you'd, you'd attend them then, not just take part in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So you're actually, yeah. so you're actually oh. attending like every other one. And that's because they have to also be there for like organizing the democratic decision of the next topic. Yeah, I remember last time I was there, Faltix was offering a warm handshake to anyone who would suggest a new topic because people were too shy to suggest. <laughs> <laughs> Which one have you been in? Um, so elliptic cohomology. How was it? Great, amazing. Yeah. Like I've learned more math this week than than in any other conference. Yeah, so. I think they're really nice. These, these yeah. yeah, I think the, the program was very well organized and people made an amazing job giving talks. And although I didn't know almost anyone there, I mean, basically I only knew Thomas. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was so good, math-wise. Do you have any idea on how to convince less experienced mathematicians or like, stu like say students, PhD students to somehow get involved in math activities which don't look as related to what you're doing but that's like later on will help you. Yeah, I think it's tough. Because I mean, like, as you said, it's like math is accumulating more and more and like even to get just an idea of what's happening in your own specialty, it usually takes years and years of work. And I mean, also for me, it took years and years and years of work. Um, 
There's a rumor on the internet that I learned the proof of last year when I was 16, but that's totally wrong because when I was 16, I decided that I wanted to learn the proof. And I mean, six years later or something, when I was 22, I could finally like get to the actual proof. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, so it just takes. I don't know, sometimes decades of work to just learn what's happening in your own field. So how should you find the time and energy to learn what's happening in some random other field that might or might not have anything to do with what you're doing? Uh, it's somehow a very risky time in this gym. Uh, it would be good. But I'm not sure how to, how to encourage it. Okay, so it sounds like when you think about learning math, some things sound more like wasting time to you. So, but what is wasting time? Isn't this whole process of engaging with math more or less time wasting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, usually I only... I mean, usually I have some idea that this might be relevant to me before I really... I mean, maybe when I was younger, I was more curious, but now I'm probably only learning something when I really have a, uh, there's some spark where I think this might be relevant to me. Um, yeah. And. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think when one has less experience, one has less capacity to recognize those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so maybe, I mean, sometimes maybe the advisor has an idea that, hey, this other area, this might be relevant in some ways to what you're doing. Maybe you should go there. But then even then, some, uh, it may be very unclear to the student what actually should be the connection here. And like, maybe without like what this advisor had in mind, and couldn't maybe even really convey so clearly, it, like it all washes over you because you don't see anything. And yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but everyone should have gone to that Arbeit Gemeinschaft on elliptical. Um, I mean, also, I mean, the Arbeitsgemeinschaften, the idea, I mean, back in the day was really that a crowd of mathematicians from all areas learn about one really interesting new development in some, some area. But nowadays, these Arbeitsgemeinschaften, even the participants, they are basically from that area. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, probably, like, if you didn't know some stable homotopy theory, probably the workshop in elliptical homology wouldn't have been so helpful. Yes, that's exactly what I'm asking about. So about this, like, le growing level of abstraction. So nowadays, we have very few events, very few successful math events where people share their mathematics to people from different areas. Right. So... Although math, like we find out new connections with math, but also we as a community maybe get more disconnected because of that. Right. There's something to that. Yeah, I know. What are your advice for young mathematicians? My advice for young mathematicians? Uh, be curious. Uh, be, follow your interests. And yeah, 
Like actually, uh, yeah, just yesterday or something like this, I reread some advice that, uh, I mean, there's a famous advice from Matt Emerton for what you should learn when you're studying arithmetic geometry. So he has a really nice comment on Terry Tao's blog. And I mean, Terry Tao also has this great advice. Um, and I mean, he gives really great advice, but I think I didn't follow this advice at all. So, uh, and more just like followed my nose, I don't know. And maybe also um, my advice is advice. <laughs> uh, so, don't follow advice, I don't know. <laughs> Look for some advice and uh, pick what's good for you.